Chapter 4, Part 2 of U.S. Marine Operations in Korea, 1950-1953, Volume 2, The Inchon Seoul Operation, by Lynn Montross and Nicholas Canzona. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Planning Phase The Landing Force Plan The decisions behind the Landing Force Plan 1st Marine Division Operation Order 2-50 obviously had to be made without benefit of Lieutenant Clark's reports, since the publication date was 4 September 1950. It is to the credit of these conclusions, therefore, that so few of them had to be corrected in the light of first-hand evidence from the objective area. Although CG-10 Corps was the assigned expeditionary troops commander, Planning on the Corps level was concerned almost entirely with the exploitation phase following the seizure of the beachhead. All landing force planning was done on the Mount McKinley by the division in close coordination with FIBGRU-1. The first consideration, as viewed by the Navy planners, was that the tides, currents, and torturous channels of Inchon made necessary a four-hour daylight approach to the transport area. This meant that 11.30 at low tide was the earliest hour of arrival, and not until about 1700 would the next high tide provide enough water for an assault landing. On 15 September, a maximum high tide of 31 feet could be expected at 1919. Evening twilight came at 1909. It was estimated initially that 23 feet of water would take the LCVPs and LVTs over the mudflats, but that 29 feet were necessary for the beaching of the LSTs. In view of these conditions, FIBGRU-1 planners concluded that 1700 was the best time for landing the LCVPs and LVTs, and it was decided to beach the LSTs at about 1900. Simultaneous landings of troops on Walmido and the mainland were contemplated. This was the point of departure for division planners. They maintained that Walmido was the key terrain feature and that it should be secured first in a separate landing. The logical course, according to the Marines, would be to utilize the morning high tide for the seizure of this island commanding the waterfront. The enemy would be given the whole day in which to prepare for the attack on the mainland, but the landing force could also utilize this period for cleaning up Walmido and moving in supporting artillery. It was typical of the harmony prevailing between the two planning groups on the Mount McKinley that FIBRU-1 immediately accepted the concept of a double-barreled attack. The rub was that a night approach would be necessary to assault Walmido at 0600 on the morning high tide, and the Navy doubted the feasibility of a movement of the slow-moving and unmaneuverable APAs, AKAs, and LSTs through winding, mud-lined channels in the darkness. At length, a compromise was reached with the decision to employ DD, APD, and LSD types primarily, which were more maneuverable in addition to being equipped with radar navigational instruments. The morning landing on Walmido was to be made with a single battalion of the 5th Marines, to be designated by the brigade. On the mainland, the remaining two battalions would land with the evening high tide on Red Beach, just north of the causeway connecting the island with the city, while two battalions of the 11th Marines landed in support on Walmido. Meanwhile, the 1st Marines was to hit Blue Beach, southeast of the urban area, and after driving rapidly inland to consolidate their positions before nightfall, 
The two Marine regiments were to make a junction in the morning and seize the beachhead while the 17th Rock Regiment, later replaced by the 1st KMC Regiment, mopped up the city streets. Marine G4 planners suggested one of the most daring of all the calculated risks. This was the decision to use LCVPs for the Red Beach landings because their comparative speed would clear the landing area for the beaching of eight LSTs, all that could be crammed into the narrow confines of this strip of urban waterfront. Each was to be loaded with ammunition, rations, water, and fuel. Obviously, these Navy workhorses, nicknamed large slow targets, would be easy marks for NKPA shore guns, but this was a chance that had to be taken if the assault troops were to be adequately supplied. There was not time, of course, to unload and retract the ships during the period of evening high tide. They must be unloaded during the night and taken out on the morning tide. Since it was not considered feasible to land LSTs on Blue Beach, that area would not be developed beyond the needs of the immediate assault. For this purpose, 16 preloaded LVTs were to be used as floating dumps until the 1st Marines could link up with the other regiment. These were the essentials of the landing force plan. HR was ultimately determined from a study of late photographs which brought about a slight change in estimates. Since a tide of 25 feet, 2 feet higher than the initial estimate, appeared to be necessary for the LCVPs and LVTs to reach the seawall, HRO was set at 1730 instead of 1700. The completed landing force plan provided for these steps. 1. BLT-3 of RCT-5 to land on Beach Green at L hour on D-Day and seize Walmido. 2. RCT-5 minus BLT-3 to land on Beach Red at H-Hour, seize Objective OA, effect a juncture with RCT-1, and prepare for further operations to the east in coordination with RCT-1 to seize the FBHL. 3. RCT-1, to land on Beach Blue, with two battalions in assault, seize Objective O-1, and prepare for further operations to the east in coordination with RCT-5 to seize the FBHL. 4. 11th Marines, minus 3rd Battalion, 96th Field Artillery Battalion, U.S. Army attached, to land 1st and 2nd Battalions on Beach Green at H-Hour, occupy positions on Walmido, and support seizure of the beachhead with priority of fires to RCT-1. Remainder of artillery to land on call. 5. Rock Marines, initially in Division Reserve, to land over Beach Red on call and conduct operations to occupy the city of Incheon in coordination with RCT-5. 6. 1st Tank Battalion, minus, reinforced, to be prepared to land on order 1 Company in LSU on Beach Green, remainder of battalion on order on beaches to be designated. 7. 1st Engineer Battalion minus, to land on Beach Red or in Harbor on order, assume control of detached companies on order, and support seizure of Beachhead as directed. Priority to opening and maintaining MSR along southern edge of the city to RCT-1 Zone of Action. 8. 
First Shore Party Battalion minus to land on order on Beach Red or in harbor and assume control of shore party activities on beaches Red and Green. 9. First Amphibious Tractor Battalion to transport the land elements of RCT-1 on Beach Blue and continue support of RCT-1 until released. 10. Second Engineer SPL Brigade, U.S. Army reinforced, to furnish ship's platoons and augment division shore party as requested. After landing and when directed, to assume operational control of division shore party and responsibility for control of all port operations. To provide logistical support of 1st Marine Division. Availability of Brigade Troops the old recipe for rabbit stew began, first, catch your rabbit. And while the landing force plan was being formulated, General Smith had no assurance for a few days that he could count on having the whole of his landing force available. General Almond informed the Marine General on 23 August that the release of the 1st Provisional Marine Brigade for participation in the Inchon landing would depend on the military situation. He seemed doubtful and added that the withdrawal of the Marines would be bad for 8th Army morale. The attack force and landing force began their planning, however, on the basis of brigade availability. It had been the intention of Sink Fee to employ a full Marine division, but an embarkation date of 1 September would not permit the 7th Marines to arrive in time. This left the 1st Marines as the only RCT of the landing force unless the 5th Marines and other brigade units could be released. On 30 August, Smith brought up the issue again in a dispatch to Tencor, whereupon Sinkfee issued an order making the brigade troops available to the division on 4 September. This might have settled the issue if the enemy had not launched an all-out offensive on 1 September to smash through the Pusan perimeter. Although the brigade had already sent heavy equipment to Pusan for embarkation, the Marines were rushed up to the front on 2 September as a mobile reserve. That same day, the order for their release was revoked. There could be no doubt about the gravity of the military situation. Thirteen NKPA divisions were making a final effort and the Marines were needed in the Naktong Bulge sector, where the Korean Reds were attempting to cut the Pusan-Tegu lifeline. On the other hand, time was also running out for the Inchon planners. Colonel Forney, the new Deputy Chief of Staff for Ten Corps, informed Smith on 2 September that Allman planned to use the 32nd Infantry of the 7th Infantry Division if the 7th Marines could not arrive in time for the Inchon landing. Recently, the cadres of this Army Division had been brought up to strength with 8,000 South Koreans. The remaining 12,000 U.S. troops had received no adequate amphibious training, though instructors from Training Team ABLE had made a start with some of the units. This turn of affairs resulted in a meeting in General Almond's office. The Navy was represented by Admirals Joy, Struble, and Doyle, the Army by Generals Almond, Ruffner, and Wright, and the Marines by General Smith. Wright opened up the discussion by stating that Walker needed the brigade troops urgently as a mobile reserve to hold the line in the current NKPA offensive. Allman conceded that the question of brigade availability must be decided on a basis of 8th Army requirements and tactical considerations. But if the 5th Marines could not be released, he reiterated his decision to substitute the 32nd Infantry for the Inchon operation. 
Admiral Joy declared that the success of the Inchon assault depended on the employment of Marines trained in amphibious techniques, and he called upon Smith for his opinion. The Marine General said that a hastily instructed unit could not be expected to take the place of a combat experienced regiment in the landing force, and that last-minute substitutions of this sort could not be made in complicated ship-to-shore landings without courting trouble. He added that it would be necessary in such an event to land in column on one beach instead of two, with the 1st Marines in advance of the 32nd Infantry. These comments had the support of Doyle, who agreed that the availability of the 5th Marines might mean the difference between success and failure at Incheon. At this point, Admiral Struble commented that the issue boiled down to the need for a mobile 8th Army Reserve. He suggested as a compromise that a regiment of the 7th Infantry Division be embarked and moved to Pusan as a floating reserve to be landed in an emergency as a substitute for the 5th Marines. This solution was accepted. Allman called up 8th Army headquarters immediately, and with an hour, Wright telephoned to inform Smith that the brigade would be relieved at midnight on 5 September. As it turned out, the 17th Infantry of the 7th Infantry Division was embarked and transferred to Pusan to substitute for the 5th Marines, with Marine officers of Training Team Able assisting in the outloading. After the amphibious assault, the regiment landed administratively at Inchon to rejoin its parent unit. Naval Gunfire and Rockets at a conference on 1 September called by Admiral Struble and attended by Admirals Richard W. Rubel, John M. Higgins, and Sir William G. Andrews, Royal Navy, in addition to Generals Ruffner and Smith, it was tentatively agreed that the cruisers would begin the bombardment on the morning of D-1 and the destroyers that afternoon after a napalm airstrike had been conducted against Walmido on D-4. At another naval gunfire conference two days later, the napalm strike was delayed until D-3. On 8 September, when Admiral Struble held his final meeting, FIBGRU-1 and the 1st Marine Division agreed on the scope and timing of naval gunfire support. It was decided, therefore, that the bombardment would commence on D-2 and be repeated if necessary on D-1. During the following week, plans were worked out in detail. The beachhead was divided into 52 target areas, including two on Walmido and one on Sowalmido. In the channel to the west and southwest of the port, imaginary lines marked off three fire support areas for the ships, numbered in order from south to north. On D-Day, the four cruisers would stand in from 13,000 to 15,000 yards offshore in fire support area 1, while the destroyers in FSAs 2 and 3 manned stations 800 to 6,000 yards from the beach. The three LSMRs would support the Walmido landing from close-in positions to the north and west of the island. Later, for H-hour, one of the rocket ships was to remain northward to soften up Red Beach, and the other two would displace to the vicinity of Blue Beach. From L-45 to L-2, the cruisers and destroyers would dump a total of 2,845 shells on Inchon and its outlying island, each ship concentrating on specifically assigned target areas. From L-15 to L-2, each of the three LSMRs would saturate Womido with 1,005-inch rockets. 
Most of the ships were to cease fire two minutes before the landing on Green Beach, when Marine planes strafed possible enemy positions for final shock effect. Four of the destroyers would continue to pound inch-on targets with 55 shells during the short air attack. Another intricate piece in the mosaic of destruction was the mission assigned to one LSMR for the period immediately preceding and following the landing of 3-5. The lone rocket ship would lumber parallel to Wolmido's shoreline across the front of the advancing first wave and pour 40mm shells into the beach area. Clearing the route of approach to Green Beach just in time for the landing craft to speed by, the LSMR was to continue southward along the coast and direct its heavy automatic fire at the slopes in advance of the attacking troops. Once Walmido was secured, the full fury of the support ships would rain down on targets in the Inchon area. From H-180 to H-5, the cruisers and destroyers were scheduled to blast their assigned targets with a total of 2,875 shells. Chiming in at H-25 with 2,000 rockets apiece, the LSMRs would pulverize red and blue beaches until five minutes before the landings by the two marine regiments. At that time, all ships must cease fire to clear the way for strafing Corsairs and Navy Sky Raiders. The meticulous planning left nothing to chance, even with the assumption that a foothold would be successfully established by darkness. During the night of D-Day, the cruisers would expend an additional 250 shells on interdictory missions, and the destroyers were authorized to fire a total of 305-inch rounds on call from the infantry. To help thwart any possible enemy ambitions at dawn of D-1, the cruisers would be prepared to unload 300 shells for interdiction and call fires, while the destroyers stood poised with the same number of high-explosive missiles plus 300 illuminating shells. Other details of the elaborate plan dealt with the coordination of naval gunfire, air, artillery, mortars, and rockets. At certain times, for example, Marine and Navy gunners could fire only below a maximum trajectory of 1,100 feet, so that planes, whose minimum altitude was set at 1,500 feet, could pass safely over Inchon during strikes on adjacent areas. During those periods when close support Corsairs were scheduled to descend on beachhead targets, all other heavy weapons would fire completely clear of broad circles defining strike areas for the air missions. More tables and instructions in the formidable appendixes of Admiral Doyle's operation order assigned shore fire control parties their ships and radio frequencies, ships their battery missions and ammunition allowances, and a host of other tasks and responsibilities. Air Support for Incheon Air support, of course, was closely related to naval gunfire planning. After the arrival of C.G. First Ma and his staff at Tokyo on 3 September, part of the group proceeded at once to Itami Air Force Base while General Harris and selected staff members remained at Tokyo for planning conferences. Air support planning for Incheon was based on the decision that the sky over the objective area was to be divided between the organic air units of JTF-7 and 10 Corps. JTF-7 counted on its Fast Carrier Task Force, Task Force 77, to gain air supremacy and furnish deep support and interdiction strikes. Close support for the landing was to be provided by the two squadrons of TG-90.5, 
on board the CVEs Sicily and Bedong Strait, which had been the main air components of MAG-33 in support of the 1st Marine Provisional Brigade. In addition, the attack force commander could also call upon the aircraft of Task Force 77 for close support. Organic air support for 10 Corps was to be the mission of the tactical air control, set up under the operational control of the Corps commander and the direct command of General Cushman. The inspiration for this organization came from Marine officers on the staff of 10 Corps. Their suggestions were accepted by General Allman, who used his authority as FECOM Chief of Staff to put the idea into effect. MAG-33 was designated by General Harris from the forward echelon, 1st Maw, to serve as TAC-10 Corps with VMFs 212 and 312 in addition to VMFN-542 and the rear echelon of VMFN-513. These units were not to be assigned, however, until 10 Corps assumed control of operations in the objective area, whereupon they would be based at Kimpo Airfield. Meanwhile, they remained under the administrative control of ComNav Phi and MAG-12, with headquarters at the Atami Air Force Base in Japan. The two Marine carrier-based squadrons in the forward echelon of VMFN-513, having come out to Korea in August as units of MAG-33, continued to be assigned temporarily to that group for administrative purposes. TAC-10 Corps was activated on 8 September, just six days before its components landed in Japan. First small planners designated the air support section of MTAX-2, which had controlled air support for the brigade, to continue in that capacity for the landing force and later for the entire 10 Corps. Arrangements were made with the Combat Cargo Command, FIF, to airlift aviation, fuel, and ammunition from Japan to Kimpo Airfield after its capture until such supplies could be transported by sea. Marine air units were also affected, of course, by the planning which the 1st Marine Division Air and Naval Gunfire representatives of the Fire Support Coordination Center had already accomplished. Working aboard the Mount McKinley in conjunction with their opposite numbers of FIBGRU-1, the FSCC group had been busy since its arrival in Japan on 18 August. Planning was conducted with the CO 11th Marines after the artillery regiment landed in Japan and the resulting decisions coordinated with air and naval gunfire plans. The 1st MAW completed its planning on 9 September. General Cushman was designated Tactical Air Commander, 10 Corps, on that date and departed for the objective area the next day with the air elements scheduled to proceed by ship. End of Chapter 4, Part 2. Read by Aaron Bennett.